0: take your Bible and let's visit again a Messianic passage prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus fulfilled that by becoming one of us. It's found in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 and we'll also read verse 7 and then we'll go to the 26th chapter of Isaiah to read another companion passage. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, if you'll turn to the 23rd chapter, 26th actually, chapter of Isaiah. We're going to read the first four verses of this part of the book of Isaiah. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. That sounds like a good song, doesn't it? I'm not sure I've ever heard... That's song put to music that we can sing. That's a lovely thought. Probably virtually everyone here is familiar with the name Billy Graham. This man went to be with the Lord earlier this year at the age of 99. Just a few months short of his 100th birthday, had he lived to November, he would have turned 100. His brother-in-law is also an evangelist and has been associated with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association for decades. His name, perhaps you know it, probably you don't, Leighton Ford. And he has been a man who has been used by God in significant ways in the lives of thousands of people as well. Not to the degree, perhaps, that Billy Graham was used, but nevertheless, he has been used. His son, Sandy, was his pride and joy. Sandy was the epitome of what every Christian father would want in a son. He loved the Lord. He never deviated from his walk with the Lord. As he entered into his late teens and then into his early 20s, it was discovered that he had what could very well become a fatal heart disease. And so treatment was begun on Sandy. Sandy's faith deepened. And his father, Leighton Ford, was amazed at the maturity that he saw in his son and the impact of his son's life on those around him. Sandy died when he was 22 years of age. And then Leighton Ford wrote a tribute to him. It was, in a sense, a biography of his son. And it was simply entitled Sandy. In that book, he tells about how he responded to the death of his son, and how when people came to see him, they were astonished at his response to the homegoing of his son, Sandy. When people arrived, they came to console him, but they found Leighton consoling them. They thought they would find him a nervous wreck, a heap of tears, but it was he who who wrapped his arms both emotionally and physically around the hundreds of people came to pay their condolences. How was that possible for this man? Having lost the son who had brought so much joy to his life, who had his whole life lying before him as an adult, and undoubtedly he would have served the Lord had he had an extension of his life. Well, the answer is the peace of God. The peace of God is incredible in its impact upon us in the face of difficulty particularly. And actually, the peace of God is of very little value unless we have difficulty. It's designed for the storms of our lives. And we see in this passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter Nine that Jesus, the Messiah, is the Prince of Peace. Now, let me pause. I probably don't need to tell you this today, but it's worth reviewing if you've known it, or do know it, to think about it. The word peace in the Old Testament is translating the word shalom. Shalom is the greeting that is exchanged by Jewish people, and not only Jewish people, but other people in the Middle East, speak peace to one another when they interact with each other upon seeing each other or leaving the presence of one another. And this word shalom does not simply mean the end of conflict or the cessation of a war. Seventy-seven years ago yesterday, the United States of America declared war on the Axis powers of the world, Germany, Italy, and Japan and fought a very costly war to seek peace. Thank God peace was resolved and brought to pass. But it's not that kind of peace, although it c- contains that kind of peace. The best definition I could give to you, and you perhaps could give an even better one, is that this peace, shalom, is the possession of resources adequate for any difficulty or situation in which we find ourselves. This kind of peace does not depend on external situations. Rather, this kind of peace, shalom, this peace has to do with the condition of our internal life. And the Lord wants you and me to be the beneficiaries of this kind of peace. Of course... In order for us to have this kind of peace, we must know the Prince of Peace. So having said that, let's turn our attention to a consideration of what qualifies Jesus to be the Prince of Peace. Now we know He's the God who became man. That is iterated here in this passage of Scripture in the ninth chapter where the Bible says, For a child will be born to us. That speaks of the humanity of Jesus. And a son will be given to us, as we saw last week, that speaks to the deity of Jesus. We know he's God. How does this work? How is it that Jesus fits this bill? Jesus can be our peace for three reasons that I'm going to suggest this morning. First of all, because of his character. He is righteous. Righteous. And by the way, the Bible would indicate to us that Jesus Himself is more interested in righteousness than He is our peace. For good reason. Until there is righteousness in our lives, we cannot have peace. It astonishes me how intent, and in some cases preoccupied with peace, people outside of Christ are. Are. But they cannot have it until there is a reconciliation between them in their unrighteousness and God in His righteousness. This is why Jesus became one of us. This is why He came to the world. The Bible says God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. In 1 John chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He is the one who serves as our go-between, between us and God. He is the one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, who brings us to God. He is our advocate. He's the one who pleads our case Righteousness is critically important in our relationship with God. We don't have any righteousness in and of ourselves. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous. No, not one. None of us is righteous in our own nature. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we owe a debt to sin, and it's death. Jesus paid that debt for us, the righteous one. In 1 Peter 3.18, the Bible says this, that Christ Jesus, the righteous one, died for us, the unrighteous ones, in order that he might bring us to Christ. And that leads to another trait of Jesus. Jesus is the righteous one, but he's also peace. In the book of Ephesians 2:14, the scripture says this about Jesus, He is our peace. In the book of Judges chapter 6 verse 24, after Gideon had had an encounter with the one true God, He gave him a name. and the name which he gave him was one which the Lord had revealed to him regarding the Lord's nature. And that name is Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. And so, Jesus is our peace. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, each of them plays a part in our peace. And that, as we heard earlier from the book of Micah chapter 3, the Messiah will be the one who is our peace. So, Jesus is our peace. Because of His character. Do you know Him as your peace? Here's the second reason why Jesus is our peace. It's because of His cross. What He did on the cross. Jesus' cross is the basis of our peace with God. What Jesus did on the cross made things right between us and God. We read from Colossians chapter 1. I would invite you, if you have access to that, to go back to that passage of Scripture. We're not going to read the entire passage. It's one of the more wonderful expressions of the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus. But for our purposes this morning, we're going to look at verses 20 and following of Colossians chapter 1. And through Jesus... God reconciled all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of Jesus' cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death, in order to present you before God the Father holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That is the gospel, isn't it? And it is the picture of the fact that the blood of Christ, which is a euphemism, a saying that equates to the death of Christ, the cross of Christ. When Jesus shed His blood on the cross, He gave His life in exchange for, for our death, He gave us the capacity to be raised from the dead and have life everlasting and a quality of life incapable of being experienced apart from knowing Him. Let's go to Romans chapter 5 for further clarification of Jesus' cross being the basis of our peace with God. We'll begin in chapter 5 with verse. Eight, and then we'll backtrack in a moment to verse 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. The scripture says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And hearkening back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, it was through the blood of Jesus that Jesus saved us. Let's look at verse 9. It says, By His blood, much much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. We have no clue what that means. We shall be saved from the wrath of God. A day is coming when the world will be brought to judgment. All those in the grave will hear the voice of Jesus, according to John chapter 5. Both those who lived a life in dependence upon Christ and those who rejected Christ. All those bodies are going to come up out of the grave. And they're going to stand before God in judgment. It's going to be a horrible day. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hand of the living God. But for us, we're already in the hand of the living God. Correct? That's what the Scriptures tell us in more than one place. We are already there. And when we come out of the grave, we're going to have a new body if we know Christ. But had we not been pursued by this God of peace, if Jesus had not become one of us, if He had not died on the cross, if He had not given Himself to become what the Scripture calls the propitiation for our sin, which simply means He was the place where God poured all of His wrath on in order to secure our salvation. Had that not happened, we would be in, in an incredible position on that day. But thanks be to God that He's reconciled us to Himself through His Son Jesus. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies... We were the enemies of God, mind you. We were the enemies of Christ. While we were enemies... Notice the use, not of the active voice, but the passive voice. Whenever you come to a passive voice verb, it suggests that the subject is not doing the acting. The subject is being acted upon. And here this text says... We were sinners, we were enemies, and God took the initiative to reconcile us to Himself through the death of His Son. So, this is the Gospel. Jesus' cross is the basis of our peace with God. We have been made right with God. We have been brought together and reconciled with Him. Through the work of Christ. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5 of Romans. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is such a refreshing truth. We have peace with God. There is no hostility. The peace treaty has been signed in the blood of God the Father's Son, Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus because of the great work of Christ upon the cross on our behalf. Jesus became an infant and became a man and became our substitute. Jesus' cross is the basis of our peace with God Also, Jesus' cross is the basis of our peace with others. This is important. There's there's this ongoing, and for good reason, cry out for peace in the world. Peace, peace, peace. Peace in the world. In order for you and me to be instruments of peace, first of all, the internal battle The internal war has to be settled between you and me and God. The Bible speaks in the book of Galatians chapter 5 about this titanic struggle between what the Bible calls our flesh, that's our self-centeredness, our sinfulness, and the Spirit of God. We know who wins that battle in the end. And it makes perfectly good sense for us to go ahead and get that peace treaty over with from our viewpoint, from yielding ourselves by yielding ourselves to the Lord. But once that has occurred, in the book of Second Corinthians, chapter five, the Bible talks about our having a relationship of reconciliation with God, and we have also been given the ministry of reconciliation. So, if you'll go back there to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for just a quick look at this passage of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Scripture says that we are now ambassadors in verse 20 we now are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We have been given, earlier in this passage, the ministry of reconciliation. We have been given the gospel to share. We have experienced the peace of God in our lives and the righteousness of God in the person of Jesus in our lives. And the result of that is we can be the couriers Of this gospel message, this gospel of peace. When Paul is teaching about the various aspects of the armor of God, one which he alludes to is having your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The thing that will bring peace finally in the world will be the gospel. It won't be a stronger defense, it won't be a better diplomacy. It will be the gospel of God. And you and I, if we know Jesus, we have been enlisted as his ambassadors. We are people whose citizenship is in heaven. That's our primary residence. But we live on earth. And our responsibility while we're here is to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Our responsibility is to be open and willing and wanting to be used by Christ to be His ambassadors, to bring the Gospel, to bring reconciliation between God the Father and these people who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, all of us who know Jesus comprise a kingdom of priests. What is a priest's job? A priest's responsibility is to put man in touch with God and God in touch with man. So we have this great opportunity, having been the recipients of the grace of God, we have this great opportunity and responsibility to be conveyors, to be carriers, to be couriers, to be ambassadors to people who do not know Christ. What I know about ambassadors is very little. But what I believe would be important for an ambassador who was appointed by the president of our country to go to another country is that that ambassador would have some relational skills. And those relational skills would also be accompanied by a certain interest in the group that that person has been sent to to represent the president of the United States. And that would require learning something about those people. It would also require being genuinely interested in those people. And that is what should be true of us when it comes to people who are not yet born-again people. When I think about everyone I meet, I think about this. I don't know a lot of people whom I meet for the first time. And I meet a lot of people here on this property, but I meet quite a few people in the public. My first question when I meet someone for the first time, I wonder, Father, if he is one of your children yet. And my assumption is, I'm not talking to the Father, he doesn't need to know about my assumptions, he knows everything there is anyway. But my personal assumption to myself is that God would put me in the company of Any number of people on any given day with the desire for there to be a connection with Him through me as His child. And that can be true of us. Now, here's what I know about my ambassadorship as a Christian, a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. Here's what I know. I have one point of commonality with every person I meet on the earth. If I'm interested in him or her, I'm interested in the same person he or she is interested in. We're all interested in ourselves to a certain degree, aren't we? It's normal. But if I know that, if I want to get to know you and seek to get to know you, I am showing interest in you. And it's not just to say I witness to you. We hope when we share the gospel, people will come to Christ or at least get a step closer. But we have been given this ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. Paul describes himself in the book of Ephesians Ephesians, as an ambassador in chains. I love that. Do you think Paul had peace when he was in prison in Rome? Absolutely he had peace. How do you suppose... When he closes the book of Philippians, he makes reference to greetings that he was asked to send in his writings to the church at Philippi from members of Caesar's household. How did people in Caesar's household come to know Christ? We don't know for sure. It was through some ambassador of Christ that that occurred, no doubt. But we know that Paul would have had around-the-clock guards guarding him in his imprisonment. And his imprisonment, the first of the two imprisonments, and that was the imprisonment that he was confined to when he wrote the letter to the Philippians, was he was under house arrest. He rented his own place, read about it, in the book of Acts. He had his own place, but these guards the imperial guards came members of Caesar's household and they heard the gospel but you know what they did before they heard it they saw it in his life they saw something that they undoubtedly had never seen in any prisoner whom they had be had been guarding never had seen in those prisoners paul was just as cool as a cucumber and we're not talking like cool hand Luke here. We're we're talking we're talking about at peace why his situation spoke of being in disturbance but internally the prince of peace lived. And consequently he could be such a person. And that's true for us too. God wants to use us to touch people wherever we go. This is so encouraging from a personal point of view, I can't say how you would respond to it. I only have one experience, my own personal life. But I think it's not altogether unusual that when a person knows Christ, that he or she, when we learn to risk loving people in the name of Christ, sharing the gospel, looking at people not as some means to an end, but seeing people as people for whom Christ died on the cross in order that He could become our peace and their peace also. Well, let's move on. Jesus is our peace because of His character. He is peace because of His cross. But lastly, Jesus is our peace because of His companionship. I've already kind of breached into that when I was thinking about the Apostle Paul mentioning him. Do you remember what Jesus said? It's recorded in John 20 when he appeared suddenly to his apostles. What was his greeting to them? Pox will be schoon. Peace be with you. That was his greeting. And peace was with them. Why? Because Jesus was with them. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, that was not the end of Jesus' presence with them. Certainly not. Because Jesus is with us by His Spirit even now. That's the good news for us. Jesus says in John fourteen twenty seven, Peace I leave with you. He had nothing else to bequeath to these closest friends of His. He had peace, however, and peace is without match in terms of what that is. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. He couldn't even bring himself to use the word peace in association with the facsimile that the world offers as peace. What kind of peace does the world offer? A beautiful vacation in an exotic place, uh, in the out of doors. Boy, thank God for the creation. Many of us have experienced so much and have reveled in the beauty of God's creation. It reflects, it speaks highly of the Lord our God. Jesus Himself was the agent of all that creation. It is the world's way to offer alternatives to reality for us through drugs, alcohol, things that are promised to really lift us and give us a sense of peace. But the final outcome is not peace, is it? It's kind of ugly sometimes. But the Lord's peace is with us. It's His present to us. Let's look at the next thing. Jesus' companionship must be cultivated. It's there, but it has to be cultivated. When Paul is writing to the church at Galatia, he was talking to them how he viewed himself like a mother, a woman in the labor pain experience. he says, I'm like a woman in labor until Christ be formed in you. Was Christ already in the people who made up the church at Galatia? Of course He was. But He was not fully formed in them because they had not yet really latched on to who they were in Christ and had not taken advantage of growing in the Lord. So, when you receive Christ, He's there in form but He's not fully formed in you. That's what this life is about. You perhaps recall what John the Baptist said when his disciples urged him to get back into the limelight having taken himself out of the limelight because he knew that his job was done. He had done his responsibility of being the forerunner of Christ. And then he makes this statement to them when they were trying to get him to reconsider And to go back to the Jordan River and start preaching like he had for several years. And then he said about his relationship to Jesus. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. That's us. Christ comes into our lives. We have been the whole show until Jesus comes in. He's there and our mission, among other things, and really the primary mission, is for to, to see that Christ grows in our lives. How does that happen? Well, we talked about it a couple of Sundays ago. It happens by our feeding on His Word, fellowshipping with Him, cultivating our companionship with Him. This is what God calls us to do. Look at... The ways that we're to appeal to for this. We must focus, first of all, our attention on Him. Now let's go to Isaiah chapter 26, and let's read again verses 3 and 4. I'll comment on them as we work our way through. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. So we have to fix our eyes on Jesus is what Hebrews 12.2 says. And then Colossians 3.2 helps a lot here. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things above. And this word that's used here by the writer of Hebrews about having our minds stayed or fixed upon the Lord is the idea of having a mindset on the Lord. Having Him as the focal point of our lives. Looking to Him. He's the North Star. He's the one to whom we look for direction. He's the one to whom we look for correction. He is the one that we trust. And so, we have to focus our attention on Him. Make a habit. Build a life of focusing on the Lord. Do it regularly. Spend time alone listening to Him and appealing to Him for the assistance that you need. Praying to Him, asking Him to bring glory to Himself through you. That's what we need to do. Here's the next thing. We must entrust our lives to Him for safe keeping. In this passage of Scripture, there is a strong indication that we need the Lord to take care of us because there is great disturbance around us and sometimes in us. And other beings participate in this frustration. The Bible says about Jesus that He is the guardian of our souls. Aren't you glad He's a guardian? In this passage in Isaiah 26, where it says, God will keep in perfect peace the one who is fixed in his or her mind upon the Lord. The word keep is the word which means guard, protect, care for, see that something is not taken, robbed, something is not violated. This is our Lord. He cares very much about you. We have no idea how much He cares about us, but He does. And so we entrust our lives to Him. The word which is translated trust here in verse 3. Because this person trusts in you. It means to sell out to Him. And consequently, here's the beautiful outcome of that. You can be carefree, but even more than that. You can be careless. In the sense that when He gives you direction... It may seem daunting. It may be something that seems to put you at great risk. But when He tells you to do something, what you can bank on is that He's there with you. Just like He was with Paul. Paul had a second in prison. This one ended in his death. He came before the Emperor Nero. He talks about it in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, everyone has deserted me. Everyone has deserted me. Can you imagine coming before the most powerful person in the world and you're standing before Him, but He was at peace? This is what He said. The Lord was with me. Nobody else were there, was there to support me, but the Lord was with me. I don't know what you find in your life that's daunting like that, difficult, but believe me, if you know Christ, He's with you. He's there beside you. He is your guardian, the guardian of your soul. Look at verse 4. This word trust is used again. Trust in the Lord forever. Let's pause just a moment and remember what the word Lord, it's in all caps. And whenever you read the name Lord in all capitals in the Old Testament, it's referring to the word Yahweh or Jehovah as we Interpret it sometimes in English. And this word, Lord, remember this is the word that God used to identify himself to Moses in the burning bush. And when Moses asked, whom shall I say sent me? The Lord Lord said, tell them that I am sent you. The word Yahweh, Lord, translated here, is the word which means the self-existent one. He needs nobody else. He is a standalone being, the only standalone being in all of the universe. He's the one in whom we trust. For in God the Lord, look, we have an everlasting rock. The word rock speaks of the invincibility of our God. He has no peer when it comes to his strength. He is the only omnipotent, all powerful being in the universe. And this is our God in whom we trust. He is the one who came to us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we have an everlasting rock. He is eternal. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. This is the Gospel which we have. And let's look at the last thing that we need to know as we seek to cultivate our relationship with Him. We put our attention on Him. We focus our attention. He's the one that we look to primarily. And we seek to do what Paul says in 2 Corinthians ten five. We seek to take every thought to be captive to Christ, in obedience to Christ. That's what Christ would have us to do. And then we just saw that we must see ourselves as entrusting our lives to Him for safekeeping. He's the guardian of our souls. And here's the last thing. We must see ourselves as He sees us. He's not unaware of our vulnerability. If you would, turn to Psalm 103. If you have not become acquainted with the 103rd Psalm, do yourself a favor. You'll get to know God better, for sure. And you'll be built up based upon what the Word of God says about God's concern for us. Look at verse 13 of Psalm 103. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. You know, the Lord doesn't want to crush you at all. Sometimes when we know we've got somebody's number, God has our number, doesn't he? But sometimes when we think we have somebody's number in an athletic contest or a business situation or some other kind of relational situation, there's this sense for us to just kind of swell up and just let that person know that he could be history or she could be history if we wanted him or her to be history. But that's not the heart of God. He knows we're vulnerable. The Bible says in 1 Peter five eight. It, We have an adversary, the devil. But the Bible tells us also, and what does the devil want to do to us? He wants to devour us, is what it says. That's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? But what does the Word of God tell us in 1 John? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The Lord is greater. I like what Martin Luther often would say. Satan is God's devil. God is the one who rules over Satan. And that God lives in us. God knows we're vulnerable. He also sees us is incredibly valuable. We must understand just how valuable we are when we think about what it cost God to save us, to choose us. It's amazing. An item's value may be determined by the amount spent to purchase it. What did God spend to purchase you? Well, He spent the blood of His precious Son, Christ. The death of Christ. Unbelievable that He would do that for us, but He has done that for us. We must see ourselves as valuable to the Lord. That shouldn't make you cocky. It should make you humble. To think that you have that kind of value to the Lord. Here's the last thing. Victorious. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah 41.10, Do not fear, for I am with you. God speaks of His availability. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. There's an answer to a lack of peace. What do we do? We look at the circumstances externally instead of looking to the Lord. And then he concludes that verse by saying this, For surely I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. We are in the hand of the Lord. And there is victory in the Lord. There's victory in the Lord's presence. There's victory in the Lord's protection. And that is... What is true of us? Because Jesus is our peace. Thank God that He is our peace. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, the Bible speaks of the kingdom of God and its makeup. It says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is righteousness. Notice the positioning of that word. Righteousness. Reiterating what I mentioned earlier, that righteousness uh, is of the most importance to Jesus. We must be righteous in order to be benefited by all the other characteristics of Christ which become ours. It all starts with our becoming righteous through the work of Christ on our behalf, not on any righteousness that's native to us. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of... Righteousness and peace. That follows right behind it. And then joy. Joy is a great characteristic of the Lord too, isn't it? But these two that we're looking at. In the book of Psalms 85.10, the Bible says this. It says, righteousness and peace kiss. In Jesus, that's what happened. Righteousness and peace came together. In Isaiah thirty-two seventeen, the Bible says, The work of righteousness is peace, the outcome. Let's remember again the definition that I suggested for this word peace. It's the possession of the resources that make us adequate for any situation we meet. And it's the resource actually. It's the Lord God. I heard of a man who is on the edges of our church. And this man lost his job on Friday. And it wasn't a minimum wage job. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty good salary. He lost his job. He had been unemployed for quite some time prior to getting this job. And it was a well-paying job. Moved from halfway across the country Hasn't been here more than about six months. He was terminated. And as I thought about him, I, I wanted to, I wanted to be able to say to him, Brother, Jesus is your righteousness. And he has promised if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these other things will be added to you. And he's also promised in the book of Philippians that Our God will supply all our needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That would relate to any area of your life where you are experiencing trouble, difficulty. Because Jesus, who is our peace, is in you if you know Him. If you're not in Him, it's time to get right with Him. And I know you're familiar, most of you are. If you don't know him, you probably aren't aware of this, that the greeting that Paul normally gives when he writes his letters make up these are made up of these words, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace before peace. There's no peace without grace because we're unrighteous. But part of the grace of Christ is, that He wants to save you from your sins. You have to receive Him as your Lord. That means bow to Him and trust in Him as the sovereign of the universe and more precisely the King of your life. Give Him that control. And He will, in exchange, give you righteousness, peace, joy... An abundance of many other great traits. Would you pray with me a moment? Have you ever received Christ? Do you really know Him? Have you resorted to all kinds of facsimiles of genuine peace without having any positive outcome? Well, today would be the day, perhaps, that you would trust Christ. Give Him control of your life. He created you for Himself. All things came into being through Him, including you. And He created you for Himself. Give yourself to Him, would you? Would you take a moment and just say to Christ, Lord, I do want to give myself to You. I do want to accept Your forgiveness for my sin. I do want to be useful to You. join you in the ministry of helping others to make the transition I'm seeking today. Lord, I want to be your person. Please give me Jesus, your peace. I ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.